Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. started recording a while ago, but we were screwing around with Dolly and AI Image Generator. Then I thought, hmm, it would be really hard to do a podcast where you just describe AI images or images at all. You know, like, could you imagine a podcast talking about art? The thing is, it probably exists. Oh, it definitely exists. And it was probably, you know, one of the early podcasts where people tried to do that and they realized, wait, this is dumb. At least movies have, you know, the audio element to it that could make it a little more enticing, but... Yeah, describe a painting for a podcast. You know, I'm sure it's been done. It probably just wasn't good. The Jackson Pollock episode was very short. Anyway, this is, of course, Americans Watching the Footy, in which we don't really talk about paintings. We talk about footy. I'm Ethan Castle. I am Benjamin Castle. We are in South San Francisco, California. Brian Harambe is sleeping next to me, as he often does, and... Well, we've got a bunch of news stories to get to before we break down round 15, which is our first full nine-game round in nearly a month, as we've had the last three weeks with only six games, with six teams on by each week. Been kind of nice to be able to watch every game, not have to worry about overlaps. There are still minimal overlaps this round, but before we get to that, we have three headlines, all from Collingwood. We started our discussion of the Jordan Degoe Bali saga in the prior episode, our round 14 recap. If you missed that, you might want to go back and listen to what we had to say at the start of that episode before we continue the discussion here. Now we have Degoe's, I mean, I can't even really call it an apology because there isn't much of one. And the way in which he incorporates his diagnosis of ADHD makes it seem really kind of forced and as if he's using it as an excuse for his behaviors, which is the exact opposite of what Bailey Smith did and is a complete non-example compared to what we'd advised a few rounds before. What also is really a non-example is the lack of any real immediate punishment from Collingwood. It's a suspended fine of $25,000 and providing he goes through whatever treatment or therapy, he won't have to pay it. And he wasn't suspended by the club for anything though he has been granted personal leave for round 15. Make of that what you will. That could be he wants some time away because he's embarrassed. It could be the team wants to have him away to avoid being a distraction. Could be a lot of different things. But um, going back to the ADHD excuse, yeah, ADHD is not an excuse for going wild at a club. ADHD would explain, you know, I wasn't paying attention to what the coach said during training. Once again, though... If this wasn't Jordan Degoe and was somebody else that just went to Bali and was partying during his bye week, I don't think there would be much thought to it. It would just be, oh, that's interesting. I'm surprised the club let him do that. You know, if it was, I don't know, just off the top of my head, random player with no past history, like Brody Grundy or Sean Darcy or Isaac Rankin, you know, it would just be like, whatever, just weird that the club let him do that. But because it's Degoe who has a pretty checkered past, it became a whole thing. And then he ends up giving this sort of weird non-apology, I don't even know what to call it. And my thoughts on this largely remain the same from where they were a few days ago, just that I don't think he's doing himself any favors as he's about to be a free agent. And apparently a contract offer, which was in the 800000 range a year, I believe, was pulled. There's still some talk that St. Kilda has some interest in him. I know Nick Revolt has apparently been okay with that. I know in the past he's been linked to Essendon, but it's just, I think it's less about what this does to Collingwood 
and more about what this does for Dugowie himself when he needs to clean up his reputation. And again, if this was some other random player, it'd just be like, all right, he went out during the bye week, and kind of weird that the club allowed that. But again, it's the past history and that it's this on top of so many other things that makes this a story. Reminder, this is the second big scandal for him within a year, having pled guilty to harassment in New York in our winter, Australian summer. That's not the only interesting Collingwood story, though. Jack Ginevan and Isaac Quainter apologized for posting a TikTok that was offensive to women. You ready to hear about the horrifying thing they did? They the, Oh, sorry. It's the she's a 10 butt trend. They participated in this awful trend that's so demeaning to women in which basically, in which basically you say this girl's a 10 butt and then she has some sort of character flaw or something. I had seen this thing on Twitter before and just kind of passed it off. They're describing hypothetical personality traits and hypothetical women. This is not like, you know, the Tom Morris thing or anything like that. You know, it's like, she's an eight, but she's obsessed with Disney. And that brings her down to a six. Or however the trend goes. I don't know. The only thing they did wrong is be on TikTok in the first place. For those of you that don't know, I think TikTok is cancer. It's a bitch version of Vine. And your data might go to the Chinese government. Might? Yeah, there was actually a story in the last week of China accessing data of U.S. TikTok users, which really isn't a surprise. I just think it's a shitty, stupid app. I don't think they had anything to apologize for whatsoever, and anyone that's mad about this should get a life. But one Collingwood player who certainly does have a life and has done really good things for the multiple communities he's a part of is our personal favorite on the team, number 46, Mason Cox, who is now a dual American and Australian citizen. He participated in a swearing-in ceremony at the G just a little bit before we recorded this. We congratulate Mason. I just want to mention, I don't know if I've said it on air, but I love that he has like a half American, half Australian voice now. I think it's really funny. You can really hear it when he's saying longer vowels, not necessarily long vowels, but just ones that take a longer time to say. It's just weird. It's just like, wait a minute. Yes, he's also American. He doesn't have, like, the classic Southwestern accent. That, I think, would make it even more bizarre. I know that my mom has said something similar about the kind of hybrid voice with her friend that's an Eagles member. Anyway, congrats, Mason. We look forward to seeing him play at the MCG this weekend, along with two other games that will be taking place there, including the Thursday night opener. Now, before we get into that... Just want to give you a cool little heads up about the theme for this round. All eight teams that are currently in the top eight are playing another team within the top eight. And no opponents this week are separated by more than four spots on the ladder. So like ninth versus 13th, 10th versus 14th. So in theory, we should have some really close games and some really fun action. Obviously, the lion's share of the attention is going to go to the games with legitimate finals implications, but frankly, there's something to look for in almost every game. I would say I am compelled by eight of these nine matchups, and there's there's one that's definitely a step below the rest, but... Was Lion's Share meant to be a pun to help us segue into that Thursday nighter between no, Melbourne actually. and Brisbane? It actually wasn't? No, that was completely unintentional, but I'll, I'll take it. Yep. It's two versus one because thanks to the Jamie Elliott goal to close out the Queen's birthday match, Brisbane are 0.2% ahead of Melbourne now. First time they've been atop the ladder since round three. And as we're recording this, we're less than 24 hours away from this game. It'll bounce at the typical Thursday time of 7.20 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. That's 5.20 a.m. Eastern, 2.20 Pacific in the United States. This is a Fox Soccer Plus game. If you want to watch this and don't have watch AFL. Both teams enter with 10 and 3 records. When they met last year, it was supposed to be the Alice Springs game. And it's a shame they didn't get that. But at least the people of Alice Springs will get a pretty compelling matchup this year in just a few weeks. Instead, they ended up playing it at Giants Stadium. A game the D's ended up winning by 22. We read something that said the Lions haven't won at the G since 2014. And, um... Yeah, that's correct. Round 21-2014 against Collingwood. My takeaway from that is that Brisbane don't play at the G nearly enough, especially now that they're a consistent top four team. You'd think that with their old Fitzroy base, they'd have even more of a case to play at the biggest stadium. As for who the Lions won't have at their disposal as they try to snap the eight-year drought, 
Dane Zorko strained his hamstring a couple rounds ago. In his place, the 41st pick from the 2021 National Draft, James Tunsta will make his debut. A little surprised that they're giving Zorko's spot to someone new ahead of Reese Madison or Nakaya Cockatoo. A couple players that a lot of people consider to have some hard luck in not getting selected that much, especially Matheson. Additionally, Darcy Gardner had fluid removed from his lungs. He's out for a month. Jack Payne will take his place in the back line. And Zach Bailey is a late out as he has entered COVID protocols with Thomas Berry taking his spot. And I thoroughly expect that the broadcasters will not say Thomas and Jared Berry. No relation, I believe their first names at nearly any time throughout the broadcast. They're really bad at saying first names. You have to pay attention to figure out whether Nick or Josh Dacos has the ball. For Melbourne, obviously the biggest story is Stephen May's return. He is back from both his concussion and then the club-induced suspension for drinking while in concussion protocols which was part of a much larger, much more significant incident, obviously. An incident which has largely been pushed out of the spotlight because of the stories around the Bulldogs and Collingwood. That said, I would think tomorrow night's game will bring them back into the discussion somewhat, especially if Melbourne is to lose. I thought maybe Jake Melksham would find his way back into the lineup. He is not in. Sam Wiedemann is in and will likely serve as the second ruck behind Luke Jackson. Mitch Brown is out. And obviously, the biggest out for the Demons is Max Gone with ankle syndesmosis. With Gone out, we'll have his first real experience as a top ruckman in the AFL. And it's only coming against Oscar McInerney. Now, Big O is two inches taller than Jackson and has more raw strength in those contests, as it appears. But that isn't all that big of a height difference. And I really like the agility that Jackson has shown in the ruck as well as in his time forward. More than his agility, though, this will be a test of his stamina in the Rock. I want to see if they try to have him do some of the stuff that Gone often does, where he kind of plays all over the ground. And if he does, I think that'll work to Melbourne's advantage because Jackson isn't just an effective player in the center circle. He has a crazy high ceiling, and it shouldn't have taken an injury to Gone for him to have a chance to showcase that. I mean, it was on display in the first few rounds, but I'm hoping that makes a comeback. And if it does, I think the D's will be just fine. And in turn, this will probably also help cement just how important Stephen May is to their whole defensive structure. On the defensive end, Melbourne really lack a real tall key defender. I mean, Jake Lever's 6'4", but Joe Danaher's 6'7". And while having Stephen May there means that it's unlikely for a lot of lives to be able to get out back, In marking contests, I can definitely see Danaher being a frequent and successful target. In the other 50, I'm going to assume that Harris Andrews will draw the matchup of whichever Ruckman isn't in there at any given time. Though maybe that could change if Ben Brown all of a sudden gets hot. What do the Lions do to stop Bailey Fritch? I was wondering which of Marcus Adams and Jack Payne would get him. I'd say go on him with a stronger tag-like guy in Adams inside 50. And when it comes to other tagging, is Chris Fagan going to employ Jared Berry as a tagger? He's expressed willingness to do so in the past, and Clayton Oliver seems like a guy who's ripe to be tagged. I would love it if we could end up seeing Clayton Oliver and Lockie Neal really battle head-to-head. I don't know if it'll line up as such, but... Don't think it really fits their styles to go head-to-head. But it would be really cool if they did end up against each other, considering that the two are major Brownlow candidates. I think it would be really neat, even though you know this isn't like an NBA or NFL MVP vote where you can really take head-to-head performance into comparison. You know, it's on the week-by-week voting basis. But it would be pretty cool if there was a debate between the two and it would be settled by a head-to-head performance. That's someone that I think could be a ripe topic for discussion in round 23 if they keep things up, because this will be a rematch to close out the season at the Gabba. Overall, I feel like it's going to be a lot more possible for Brisbane to cut off Melbourne's preferred avenues in the forward half than the other way around. Even with Zorko out, I just feel like the one-on-one defensive matchups are better, and so the Ds are going to have to maybe be a bit more creative, go to less frequent targets in order to neutralize that. They do have a decent selection of small forwards from which they can choose, especially with Toby Bedford coming in for this contest. I've been waiting for him to get another chance. I'm hoping he gets more of a chance, whether it's in the red and blue or somewhere else within the coming years. 
Melbourne are favored by eight and a half. Just a day ago, that line said four and a half. I guess the Dane Zorko injury might have pushed some of that. I would have probably put this around one goal rather than all the way up to eight and a half. Does Zach Bailey impact the line that much as well? He's been a spark plug at times, but it's not like the Lions don't have other midfielders through which they can move the ball. This is one of those games that there's only so much to preview. I think there's going to be a lot more to talk about in the aftermath than there is in the lead up to it, because most of the pregame analysis you're going to get for this one, you can kind of get anywhere because everyone's going to be talking about this game. It's a matchup that's going to repeat, as we said, in round 23, and it maybe even turn up a third time in the finals. And hopefully people show up even on a Thursday. I know that it isn't the easiest to get around Melbourne then, and that the crowds are likely going to be lower than normal, but half full would be an achievement. And let's consider that Demons fans also have shown up in pretty lousy numbers altogether for most of the year, so my expectations are low. I guess we're going to have to rely on the Fitzroy base that stuck with the Lions when they moved to Queensland then. A rare Friday doubleheader with the two games kind of starting a half apart. The Bulldogs and Hawthorne start right at the top of the hour instead of the typical 7.50 slot. It's 7 p.m. in the eastern states of Australia. This one will be at Marvel Stadium. So that means it's 5 a.m. Eastern to Pacific for American viewers on Friday the 24th. This will be on Fox Sports 2 in the United States. So if you have DirecTV, tune to channel 618. And if you have other TV providers, you can probably find the information for yourself. We're not here to hold your hand. After taking care of the Giants in a slugfest last round, the Bulldogs are 7-6. and six. They're in 10th. Hawthorne are coming off their bye 4-9 in 14th. These teams played in the penultimate round last year, round 22 in Launceston and... Alistair Clarkson got his final win at the helm of the Hawks by 27 points on a day when the Bulldogs could just not manage anything offensively. Just 5-7 for them. This is helping me remember just how much they limped into the finals and slid from the top four when that was thought to be pretty much impossible just a couple rounds earlier. This is the second week of Bailey Smith's headbutt suspension to be followed by his two-week cocaine suspension. They knew they were going to be without him for this game. We also found out Sunday or Monday, depending on what part of the world you live in, that Tim English suffered a concussion against the Giants. It was one of those sort of late developing ones. Wasn't really known about until well after the game, but the symptoms popped up and he's going to be unavailable this week. Honestly, I think Braden Proust ought to be thankful that the diagnosis didn't come sooner because because he probably would have gotten two games as opposed to one had that concussion been known about sooner. Bulldogs are also going to need to replace Taylor DeRay, who suffered a knee injury against GWS. And from what we can tell so far, it sounds like Cody Waitman is somewhere in between questionable and doubtful to play this week after dislocating his elbow, though that didn't stop him from finishing the game last week, which was... Pretty incredible. Sounds like Josh Bruce needs another week in the VFL, though there's an outside chance they elevate him for this game. Fortunately for them, they do have a lot of good candidates to come grab the spots currently held by the injured guys. Between Hayden Crozier, Lockie Hunter, Lockie McNeil, Jordan Sweet, Mitch Wallace. You know, this is a team with probably 30 plus guys that can play at the AFL level, even if, you know, there's a select few that are clearly their most important and best players. I don't think there's that much drop-off between players, say, 10 to 20 and 20 to 30, which puts them in a position where they can handle injuries like this, although, obviously, English is a big one. The good thing is they've had to learn how to play without him already, so this won't be, like, a complete shock to the system. And it's also against a team that isn't the strongest in ruck contests, though Ned Reeves has begun to prove himself more and more. Would have loved to see the English-McAvoy matchup, though that'll have to wait until at least round 23 in Launceston, depending on Big Boy's recovery time. For the Hawks, Jack Dunstan and Mitch Lewis are likely to return from ankle and knee injuries, respectively. However, Sam Frost will be on the sideline for three to five weeks with a knee problem of his own. We know that midseason draft pick James Blank will debut. As for who else comes in, in terms of forwards, you could have Brian Myers' close friend James Warple looking further upfield, midfielder Connor McDonald might get a shot, or Denver Granger Barras further back. Hawthorne ought to get some sort of support for CJ, for Jack Scrimshaw, James Sicily out there. It's a loaded forward group, even if Waitman is doubtful, 
and somebody's got to figure out how to match up with Aaron Naughton. I wouldn't have expected that. Frost would have been a pretty good matchup. The height's similar, might be able to box Naughton out of some contests, but without him, to whom does that responsibility fall? Is this where Harry Morrison will have to do more airborne work? That seems like a logical fit, though I'm sure whatever it is that the Hawks do come up with, Sam Mitchell and his staff will have considered thoroughly. And I'm sure once again, regardless of how the game goes, I'll leave with a positive impression of their coaching. I don't think there's been a time this year where I haven't, even the games where they've run out of steam late. couple things I want to add. Disappointing that we won't get Tim English matching up against Jai Newcomb because the actual hitouts are one thing, but clearances... Those two are masters of it in completely different ways, and I think that's something that could really propel the Hawks to have the upper hand, is if someone else isn't able to match up with Newcomb there, whether that be Bonapelli, Libertore, McCray, Josh Dunkley, although he usually is playing a bit further forward. I was really thinking McCray would be that ground ball clearance guy. These are two clearance predicated and high scoring teams, and whoever does win that clearance battle will have more than an upper hand, maybe a whole upper arm. I'd like to see another big game out of Aaron Naughton because he's had some really good performances, including last week against GWS, but he hasn't often strung great performances together back to back. So I'd really like to see him do that. You know, I don't think he's really had a stretch of more than one or two bad games in a row. I don't know if he's even had a stretch of two bad games in a row, but I can tell you it hasn't been often that he's gone out and just been that dude two weeks in a row. So I'd really like to see him just take over again. Well, he's going to be targeted more with Waitman's status being what it is, even if Cody does play. I have a feeling you'll see Bonapelli have a bit more full forward time as well. But in contrast to the coaching that we see from Mitchell, I don't know what sort of strategy Luke Beveridge will come up with or if it's going to be effective. This can definitely be a case where it's just the raw talent for the Bulldogs going up against a more sophisticated coaching effort. And I think we'll be able to tell if that's the case, especially if the dogs just keep it the same strategy, regardless of whether or not it works. This could be a game that can give us a positive impression of Luke Beveridge as a coach, because we already both like what Sam Mitchell is doing, even if the results aren't showing just yet on the ladder. And speaking of results not showing on the ladder, how about 18th hosting 16th? That other Friday game, which will start at the latest bounce time we've had this year. I believe there was one other game with this time that was also part of a Friday doubleheader. It was also in the West and involved a team at the bottom of the ladder. This time it's the Eagles' turn against a team with a substantial Western fan base in Essendon. So yes, it'll be 3.40 a.m. for us on the West Coast of the United States, 6.40 a.m. on the East Coast, 6.40 p.m. local time in Perth, 8.40 p.m. in the Eastern States. If you want to watch this game live in the U.S., you better have Watch AFL. If you don't, it'll be on Fox Soccer Plus at 2.30 p.m. Pacific or 5.30 p.m. Eastern. The Eagles are 1-12. in They enter this game in dead last, though they've been making up ground on percentage to North Melbourne. And Essendon sit at 3-10, and they're in 16th, and I can't believe I'm saying this. If you had told me a week ago that I was going to be excited about this game, I would have thought you were crazy, but after the results these teams put up last week, I'm actually looking forward to this game. The Eagles made Geelong fight for a three-goal win for the better part of three quarters, and Essendon wiped the floor with St. Kilda in Spud's game of all things. And now the question is, can these coaches and these players catch lightning in a bottle again? Lightning in a bottle. Blip. The Eagles had a really solid defensive structure and some effective counterattacks, though they were undone by some sloppy kicking and overall inability to convert on inside 50s. Some of that was just Josh Kennedy getting old. Some of it was bad turnovers. But they're looking more like themselves. They're getting healthier. Tim Kelly and Liam Ryan both missed last week with illness. Both are likely good to go. And Nick Nadanui might be just a week or two away from returning from his knee injury. I really wish I could have seen him try to get the better of Sam Draper and Andrew Phillips. Unfortunately, that won't happen this time. I don't think it's going to look pretty in terms of the hitout numbers. Now, having live with Kelly and Ryan back will be great, but those two won't be able to fix the Eagles midfield woes in full. 
It's going to need more of a coaching effort. I said game on to midfield coach Matthew Knights in the last episode. And I think we'll be able to tell just if they've been able to tidy things up or not. And if they've been focusing on that in the six days between their promising effort against Geelong and this one. Jeremy McGovern remains out with a pretty severe rib injury. That Jeremy Cameron bump was a lot harsher than we initially thought. He spent multiple nights at Royal Perth Hospital before having the surgery. He needed getting some screws in there. But this will just put even more of a focus on Tom Barris. Let's see if he can deliver again. The Eagles defense didn't suffer that much when McGovern left. They still played a pretty solid game. And I think their defense against the Essendon forwards should be the most compelling element of this matchup. Would love to see Alex Witherden come back in as well. He was omitted last round. The Eagles do have a good selection of young guys that they can choose from that didn't play last week. Alex Witherden, Isaiah Winder, among others. Greg Clark was the sub last week. I thought he ought to have been in the 22 to begin with. Did get decent time once McGovern left the game. As for Essendon, Darcy Parrish is questionable with his ankle injury that kept him out of their win. Seemed to not hurt them at all because Essendon were finally playing more and better contested footy. Jai Caldwell and Dylan Shield were driving a lot of that success through the middle. Andy McGrath was certainly impactful, playing more of a halfback role. However, he has an adductor strain and is out for this one. So if Parrish does come in, it'll just be a simple swap there. A lot of Essendon's success last week came from really good forward pressure. And I don't know if they're going to have the same success with that this week against the Eagles because the Eagles' back line is their strength and they're pretty composed and don't usually give the ball up in those spots. Thing is, I trust those Eagles defenders more in the air than on the ground. So it depends on how willing they are to take on the Essendon forwards, how much they're able to just do their classic thing and get a few simple kicks out to the wings with easy marks. I don't think they're going to have the easiest time with that. I think it's going to definitely be a bit of a test form and a test that some people might not necessarily be expecting when they just look at where these teams each are in the grand scheme of things. Both teams have promising young pieces, but Essendon are seeing more immediate returns from them. I think that's just because they've gotten more of them. The Bombers are favored by 15 and a half. Last year, actually, they won by 16 at Optus Stadium. That was really one of the first games. This was in round 11 where we really started to take notice of the Bombers, because if you recall, they got off to a pretty slow start last year as well. So I think this game could end up really close down to the wire. I think if there's a blowout, it's the Bombers winning big. I don't really see a scenario where the Eagles win by like 30 or 40. Neither do I, but this is the first game of the year where I can sincerely believe that the Eagles can have more of a hand in winning this game than their opponents may in losing it. You still think they're going to be singing in Uganda after this game, though, right? Oh, absolutely. And if you haven't heard the Ugandan version of See the Bombers Fly Up, do yourself a favor, pause, go find it on YouTube, and then come back. You will be dancing to it for the rest of the day. Next up is a game that should be played at the MCG, but will instead be played at Marvel Stadium. More on why it should be at the MCG when we get into our next game, but... It's just our second rematch of the year, and both rematches so far this season have featured Carlton. As opposed to Hawthorne, who play all 17 teams once first before having their five rematches at the very end of the season. See, I kind of like that. I do as well, but the Blues and the Dockers have no say in the matter. They'll be starting off a three-game slate on Saturday, starting Friday night for us in the United States. This will be 8.45 p.m. Pacific for us. On Friday the 24th, 11.45 p.m. Eastern. It'll be my first Eastern time game of the year because I'll be visiting lovely Ohio. In Australia, it's a nice and early 11.45 a.m. start for Western fans. Welcome to our world watching American football. That's still almost two hours later than what we have to deal with. Eh, Close enough for me to draw the comparison. It's a 1.45 local start in Melbourne. This is a Fox Soccer Plus game in the United States, which is particularly unfortunate. 
Carlton enter at 9-4. They're in fifth, slipping out of the top four after losing to Richmond this past week. Fremantle have been steady in the top three for a while. They are 10-3. They're in third on percentage. That first matchup this season, a 35-point win for the Dockers at Optus Stadium, was, I think, the real start of the flag mantle craze with how well Carlton had gone in the beginning and how that game, really for me, I thought of it as Frio's first test. It is important to note that Mark Pittenett left that game injured, as was the case for the Blues' first two losses. He still has yet to return from his knee injury. It's also worth noting that the Carlton defense was already shredded by injuries entering last week and has gotten even worse as newcomer Sam Durden suffered a knee injury of his own. Lockie Fogarty probably slots in for him. Also worth noting that Jack Martin is questionable, and you really need to have a steady defense against Fremantle because the Dockers are going to put on some crazy forward pressure, especially with Michael Frederick back from his one-week suspension for drinking during a six-day break. That's not something that I had ever heard of before this. I understand why you wouldn't want players drinking in public. I doubt that they would be testing at the, let alone that it would stay on the breath for that long. So I guess it's more of an optics thing than anything. One way or another, Frederick seems like a somewhat logical replacement for Sam Switkowski, who will be out for at least a month with a stress fracture in his back. A back stress fracture also ended the season for Carlton's Oscar McDonald a number of rounds ago. Matt Tapiter and Josh Tracy both played in the waffle last week. Tapiter, recovering from a back injury, came through unscathed and could factor in the selection this week. However, Tracy left that game with an ankle injury. Blake Akers suffered a hamstring injury a couple rounds ago. Darcy Tucker was the medical sub then and could fill his spot straight away. And Heath Chapman remains a week or two away from return. But with the depth that Rio have as opposed to Carlton, I don't really worry about their back lines at all. Griffin Lowe can go between fullback and full forward. He's plenty capable in the former, is starting to be able to do more in the latter. I think he'll be a solid small fullback in this one. The Dockers are favored by four and a half, and the more I think about it, the more I think this matchup favors Fremantle. Yes, Carlton's forwards are awesome, and now they've got Harry Mackay back. He nearly led a comeback all by himself last week. But I think an inexperienced defense against the pressure that the Fremantle forwards put on is what will really decide this game. That said, if the Blues can get it out of their own back end, I think they can do fine in the midfield, even against the likes of Brayshaw, Darcy, and Mundy. But I think Frio's structure is going to be too much for Carlson to handle. If the Blues do have a way around that, it would be a really good reflection on Michael Voss's coaching and his ability to adjust because... His coaching and the praise he's earned, which has been completely deserved, hasn't been so much about adjustments he's made. It's just the system he installed from the get-go and playing to his team's strengths. Meanwhile, Frio are a team that can easily adjust between different styles, seemingly at the push of a button on whatever console Justin Longmere is using. I believe he's using the Virtual Boy. On the defensive end, Hayden Young and Alex Pierce going up against Mackay and Kerner should be really fun. Between Michael Frederick and Jordan between Michael Frederick and Jordan Clark, and with Carlton's defense being thinner, I feel like Frio have more than the right pieces to do a lot of their best work through the wings. Meanwhile, I see Carlton as a team who, thanks to Patrick Cripps in particular, seem more likely to kind of try and bruise their way through the middle. David Mundy and Andrew Brayshaw are both really good tacklers, so could make for some fun occasions there, though I doubt either of them will be able to absolutely drive Cripps into the ground like Marlon Pickett did when he had that high-scoring freestyle wrestling move last round. I think for Carlton to have success against that forward pressure, they're going to need to pull some of their midfielders back more, kind of have the more trusted ball handlers play back towards their own goal. Even if that compromises them elsewhere on the ground, it's probably their best way forward. I've got a feeling that a higher score in this game would favor Frio, so that makes even more sense to be the normal. Hurts to not have Adam Chera for this one because he could maybe be able to lock down some defensive matchups. It's funny, normally you'd think a higher scoring matchup would favor Carlson, as it usually does, and typically a lower scoring game favors Fremantle, but considering what we know about the Dockers' tendencies and who the Blues are missing, this one kind of goes the other way. So... If the Blues win a lower scoring game or if the Dockers win a high scoring affair, you heard it here first.
Don't forget, as always, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. You can find me at Castle Media. You can find me at BenjaminHK01, and you can find Brian Harambe the Footy Cat on Instagram at CatNamedBrian, or just scampering throughout the bottom floor of this house. He'll probably put one of his mouse toys underneath the laundry room door very soon. He's become very good at this. So you know how Ethan said Carlton versus Fremantle should be at the G, but it's at Marvel? That's because Geelong and Richmond should be at Cardinia Park instead of the G. It's a de jure Geelong home game, but it's a de facto Richmond home game. It's at the G. That's all that needs to be said. That said, it should be a heck of a game considering the Cats have won four in a row and the Tigers might be the hottest team in the entire competition right now. It'll still be Friday night on the West Coast of the United States when this one gets underway at 11.35 p.m. On the East Coast, it'll be at 2.35 in the morning on Saturday, and it'll be at 4.35 p.m. at the MCG. If you're looking for this one in the U.S., it'll be televised on Fox Sports 2. As we mentioned, both these teams coming in hot. The Cats 9-4, they're up to fourth place. The Tigers 8-5, they are in sixth. Geelong won both matchups last year pretty handily. In round eight, the Richmond home game at the G, when there were actually people there, the Cats exactly doubled them up, 126 to 63. Then in front of absolutely no one in round 19, it was Geelong by 38. That first game, the Cats played an insane third quarter, and it was when they really started to get into a good form because they had started the year kind of shaky. They were coming off a really frustrating loss to Sydney the week before, and That third quarter was a massive breakout. And as well as Geelong have been going without a lot of their top pieces, they're going to be pretty much at full health coming into this one. Patrick Dangerfield, Jack Henry, Max Holmes, and Gary Rowan are all available. It makes the list situation pretty tough, but Jed Buse is likely on his way out of the 22. Luke Dollhouse is really good in the sub role. I would not be shocked if he returned there. So maybe Cooper Stevens or Francis Evans gets a crack. For some reason, I just don't see Brian Myers being a sub. I think he's either in or out. That said, they initially listed him as managed and then used him as the injury sub against Port Adelaide. I think he and Luke Dollhouse both profile really well as the injury sub. I've said that before about Dollhouse. But I think Myers is a speed-based player. When he comes in fresh and everyone else has been running for a while, if he gets subbed in in the middle or latter stages of the game can really have a profound impact, and he's shown his ability to play outside of his forward role, considering the defensive moonlighting he did in that win over the Bulldogs. The big one for Richmond is that Dustin Martin's back, though they will have to replace Noah Balta, who's got a hamstring injury, and Trent Cotchin, who broke his collarbone. Seems like Ivan Soldo is an easy fit to come into one of those spots. There's a chance Robbie Terrence in consideration, even though he just had minor hand surgery. If Terrence can't go, then Miller might get another chance. Miller debuted in the final round of last season and played three of the first five games this year. Overall, I feel like Richmond might be a little less plug-and-play without Balta because he might be the most versatile player out of their entire group. We've seen him play in pretty much all facets, including as a second Ruckman. Tom Lynch could do a little work in the forward 50, but with how you want to keep him stationed there, it makes too much sense not to bring Soldo back in as a second to Nan Curvis. I still think they can do a lot of plug-and-play stuff when you've seen in the past that they moved Josh Gibkiss around. Soldo is another one that can get moved around a bit. I think it really means when you prepare for Richmond, you aren't as much preparing for specific players to fit specific roles, and you're really preparing for the team as a whole. And then during the game, you have to adapt to what individual parts are doing. How do you feel about Chris Scott being able to properly adapt. He's actually done it pretty well two games in a row. So I'm much more encouraged. As I've said before, overall, I've liked Chris Scott's coaching this year a lot more than last year. I only think really the Saints game and maybe the Hawthorne game are the only times where he's really been straight up out coached. Whereas last year, I don't think he was deploying pieces properly at all. I think He and the staff as a whole have been much better this year. So I'm not as discouraged by this as I normally would be. I think there's more at stake for Richmond in this game. I think if the Tigers win this game, all of a sudden it turns their hopes from we're a finals team 
to top four and a legitimate run at a fourth flag with this core. So I think there's more at stake for the Tigers here. And I think a lot of what's at stake will be determined in their defensive 50. I highlighted Nick Flostone, Dylan Grimes, and Liam Baker for their defensive work last game. They will have a host of forwards to deal with. Could definitely see Baker trying to go up against Tyson Stengel with the way each of them are able to move around. It seems like the most logical matchup of the big scoring threats. Between Blostone and Grimes, you're going to have to split your time between Tom Hawkins and Jeremy Cameron. Oh, and Gary Rowan's coming back from COVID, so that's another wrinkle to add to the mix. Do not let him score twice. Might be one of Daniel Rioli's tougher defensive assignments, though, though he's locked down similarly skilled forwards this year. I have no idea where Mark O'Connor goes. I would think he gets Dustin Martin. My other concern is how do you match up with Tom Lynch? Because one of the few things this Geelong team lacks is a real tall defender to handle a guy like that, unless you take Stewart out of his kind of roving role. Blitzoffs can play pretty much anywhere. I'm thinking it might be him. We suggested that he's a guy that can match up against Bobby Orchol as well. And the former steeplechaser has already done some time at fullback this year. I think it's got to be him. He's not a great kick, but that's not your concern back there. Your concern is winning enough contests to limit Lynch from being so effective. Big problem there is keeping your hands in the right place. I do want to mention a couple things that go favorably for the Cats. First off, having Sam Menegola with a game under his belt should definitely help. He can cover a lot of ground in the midfield and is one of the guys who can play a more ground-based game. I'd like to see him and Brad Close both doing that. And also, with Jack Henry back in, I don't think people realize just how good Geelong's defense is. There might be other teams with better defensive structure, or systems that lend itself to yielding fewer points. But I don't know if there's a team out there with four stronger defenders than the Cats have to start off with. Stewart, DeConing, Atkins, and Henry. People might forget already. I certainly forgot until I saw this the other day. Henry finished second in Kargi Greaves voting last year. Also, Chris Scott, please play close further back. It's where he belongs. Geelong are favored by one and a half. Don't really have much more to read into this. Should be a close game. Contrast in styles. Is it made the best midfield win or made the best defense win? Well, if the better defense decides this game, you would think that plays right into the Cats' hands. I really like what Richmond have been able to do from the back, but it's a tall task to go up against the Tom Stewart-led Geelong bunch, even if someone like Lynch might be able to outsize most of them. Considering how much of Sam DeConing's success has come since Jack Henry went out, Having those two together could be a lot of fun. And maybe DeConing ends up with a few matchups with Lynch. I think his strength could help him play up there, even if he's giving up a little bit of size. With how well Jack Darling had been going before that game, it definitely did impress me. The Saturday triple header is pretty ridiculous overall. It was damn good last week. It didn't have six top eight teams, though. And that's going to be rounded out at the SCG with Sydney hosting St. Kilda in a game that suddenly has more of an aura of desperation around it. Both teams lost in disappointing fashion last week. They both just kind of strayed from what had helped them so much thus far this season. Just easy connections that were missed. It was the simple things that got in their way. And that's why they both sit at 8-5. and five. Separated by 1.8%, Sydney have the edge at 115.1, so they're in 7th to St. Kilda, 8th at 113.3. This one will bounce from the center of the very short ground with the very low camera at 7.25 local time. So that's 5.25 a.m. Eastern, 2.25 a.m. Pacific for us American viewers on Saturday the 25th, and we can watch it on Fox Sports 1. These teams met twice last year with the home team winning each, the Swans in round 12 by 9, the Saints at an empty Marvel Stadium in round 21 by 29. Initially, these games were going to be played in reverse order. COVID stuff led to those games being flipped around. I don't know if it contributed at all to either results or affected anything. Probably didn't, but it was what it was. They'll also be meeting twice this year. In fact, this is the third game this week that'll have a round 23 rematch. That will be, as most Saints home games are, at Marvel Stadium. You know, it's interesting. 
when you look at how each of these teams played in their losses last week, the Saints will be looking to avoid replicating everything except the first 10 minutes of the third quarter. And the Swans will be specifically looking to avoid repeating the third quarter in which Peter Adams played really, really stupid, giving away goals left and right and earning himself a suspension that'll keep him out of this game. That could end up being for the better, though, considering what happens when he gets out of control. They were also just getting chased down and tackled everywhere. They were turning the ball over constantly. It was a really bad stretch that let Port Adelaide go on a 38-0 run to open the third quarter. With that Latham suspension, it's a great time for Tom Hickey to come back. He played in the VFL last week. Also possible someone who underperformed last week, someone like Sam Wicks, gets replaced by another guy who had a good week in the VFL, whether that be someone like Ben Ronk, Joel Amarty. Amarty could figure in as a second ruck in that case. I guess for now, it would be Sam Reed. That would be a good way to keep him on the ground for longer. Done all right for himself in the time that he's had, especially thinking back to that Melbourne game a couple rounds ago. I'd say having a second ruck is imperative when you consider how vital Rowan Marshall has been for St. Kilda. You know, we've talked about kind of the guy who has to touch the ball, Every time he does, good things happen. And for St. Kilda, that seems to be Rowan Marshall, you know, not counting the, the hitouts. But if he gets a touch in or anywhere near the forward 50, it almost always seems to result in a score for the Saints. And when Marshall pushes forward, or when Patty Ryder does on the occasions that Marshall steps in against Hickey, that one-on-one close to the goal square should be a pretty vital contest. Wouldn't be shocked if Tom McCartan actually takes it leaving Patty to do more of a roving job and Tom to stay steady on the ground. In that case, I could see Dane Rampey going up against Max King. Question is, how much will Max actually lead to the ball? Needs to be more like Buddy in that regard. Looking at the Saints injury situation, Jack Steele is probable to return after rehabbing from his shoulder injury, and Daniel McKenzie and Mitch Owens will both be out of concussion protocols. Ryan Burns is likely to have to exit the side, but... Who else? Josh Gavilich suggested Dan Butler could be the other casualty there. Butler had to fight his way back from the VFL just a couple rounds ago. Was noticeable against North, not so against Essendon. A whole lot of forward half depth for St. Kilda, and maybe that could allow Tim Membry to play further back once again, like he did in the second quarter to help stem some of the bleeding there. Maybe Steele coming back in could result in St. Kilda losing less offensively when Membry does get pushed back. I really think bringing memory back is something that they should probably reserve for times when the defense is really struggling or if it's, you know, late in the game and you're protecting a lead. Because I think he offers so much forward that it's hard to make that sacrifice, even though he is pretty good in the back half. Maybe Steele himself could be the guy to push back instead now that I think of it. The Swans are favored by 14 and a half. Coming off how each team played last week, I can see more positives in Sydney's game, but I'm not completely sold. I don't know how much home ground advantage will factor into this. Seems like it factors in less than we may have thought initially. It's not like it's a huge trip as well, not like you're going to Adelaide or Perth. One way or another, this will have major implications near the bottom of the finals tier, and we could look back on this game as well as their round 23 rematch as defining each team's fate. I'm looking forward to the third quarter of this game because both teams have had great third quarters this year. These are two coaches that make really good adjustments. Should be a fun back and forth. And whoever goes into halftime trailing, as long as it's by a manageable margin, I wouldn't be surprised if they come out and completely flip the game in the third quarter. That is a hell of a Saturday slate. In comparison to that, Sunday is bound to disappoint especially when it starts with North. No disrespect to the good work that some of their pieces have done. I mean, Todd Goldstein is still as vital a piece as ever. Tristan Jerry supporting him is good. Let's see how much the bye did for him. North hosting the Crows at Blundstone Arena, Saturday night in the United States, 8.10 p.m. on the West Coast, 11.10 on the East Coast. In the Eastern States, it'll be at 110, and if you're in South Australia, it'll be a 1240 bounce. In the U.S., it'll be televised on Fox Soccer Plus. North at 1 and 12, clinging to 17th over West Coast. The Crows at 4 and 9, they are in 15. Crows had some good things going for them in the loss against Gold Coast. 
Sam Barry stepped up in the clearances when Ben Keyes didn't. A huge plus there. Darcy Fogarty had a strong game all over the ground, as opposed to just when he's stationed in the forward 50. But they created a lot of messes for themselves with unintelligent passes, and they need to be tidier even against North in order to tip the scales in their favor. The Crows did win both games against North last year by more than 40 points. In round four at Marvel Stadium, they won by 41. And in round 23 at the Adelaide Oval, they won by 44. Jason Horn Francis will be serving the first week of his two-week suspension for striking Josh Kelly. Note that it was two weeks because he got him on the chin. Lockie Young was given a dumb one-week suspension for a completely incidental play. He'll be serving that this week as well. We said for a few weeks that North are going to be getting some important players back after the bye, and it sounds like they will be getting three of them in Aiden Bonner, Ben Mackay, and Cam Zerhar. Maybe Taron Thomas gets back in. He was dropped to the VFL for disciplinary reasons. The best news for North this week is that it sounds like Ben Cunnington should be back by the end of the season. Cunnington, one of three players to have undergone treatment for testicular cancer within the past year, as well as Sam Doherty and Bobby Hill. Hopefully that news for Cunnington will provide a morale boost because it's something that the Kangaroos look like they desperately need. For North this week, I'd like to see a sense of structure, and I'd like to see Ben Mackay not have to get subbed out. For the Crows, Riley Philthorpe was subbed out after rolling his ankle in third quarter last week. His status is yet to be determined. Probably a better prognosis in that case. Hopefully he can stay in. If he can't, a lot of players have performed well in the sample. I'm going to particularly note Elliot Himmelberg here because of the potential for a simpler swap into the forward lines. Mid-season recruit Brett Turner should also be ready after a foot injury, so between the progress made in the twos and the new member of the list, we could see Matthew Nix and list management making a whole lot of changes here. We'll just have to wait until closer to game time, and we're pushing this out long before those lists get announced. I don't have much else to say about this game other than that I learned that Fisher McCasey spells his first name with a C, F-I-S-C-H-E-R, and that his last name, it's not McCasey, it's McCasey. I thought it was either capital M, capital C, A-S-E-Y, like McCasey. Maybe. Or, you know, capital M, lowercase c, uppercase c, etc. But no, it's capital M, lowercase c, uppercase A. I don't know what you need to do with this information, but I found it interesting. I hope you do as well. All I really have is that the Crows have got to take care of business here. If they fail to, I think you start questioning just how much progress they've made because it's been a slow climb. I'd say for the most part, there has been further development this year, but if they were to show that they aren't able to stay well clear of teams like this, it would reflect really poorly on their prospects for the big picture. At this point, you could say they'll win three games early and who the hell knows about the rest? I can't say this one is a gimme, even though a lot of betters really like the Crows' chances because they're favored by 18 and a half. I'd say that's a pretty appropriate line. I think this game might actually have the widest range of likely outcomes out of all of them this round. And I think that kind of the Crows by three goals fits smack in the middle of those likely outcomes. I'll be most interested in looking at the matchups that occur in the Crows' forward 50. I expect... North's additions on defense to be tested early and often by that mix of targets the Crows can have between Taylor Walker, Darcy Fogarty, maybe Riley Philthorpe. Who knows if Josh Rochelle stays in after having not done much last game. Shane McAdams certainly will. I really liked his work the past couple rounds. Their attack is much more varied than North's is, and I think that's going to present the greatest interest in this game overall. And if you're interested in this game, you get it twice. They'll also be meeting at the Adelaide Oval in round 22. And if you're not interested in this game... Good news, everyone! Because another game starts during it. And this one has a bit more riding on it, at least for one team, that being Collingwood, as they host the Greater Western Sydney Giants at the G. Americans can watch this on Fox 2 as it bounces at 10.20pm Pacific Time on Saturday the 25th. 1.20 a.m. Eastern Sunday, the 26th. It's a 3.20 p.m. local bounce at that typical Sunday afternoon slot at the G. The Pies are just out of the 8 on percentage. They're in ninth place at 8-5. and 
GWS look revived since Mark McVeigh took over as their caretaker, and they scored a whole lot last week, but couldn't hold off the Bulldogs, lost to them by 20. The Giants won this matchup last year at the G in round four, 90 to 60. And in hindsight, maybe that was the beginning of the end for Nathan Buckley. Not entirely sure. It was definitely the game where we realized, okay, Collingwood have some serious problems. Bill Davis could be back this week. He played the VFL and showed well, as did Tim Tarano looking further up the ground. They're going to have to patch a couple holes because James Peatling, who has had a good stretch of games in recent times, is out two to three weeks after straining his hamstring. And Ryan Angwin suffered from the debutante curse last round and fractured his tibia. He'll be out for most, if not all, of the rest of the home and away campaign. But as big as Davis and Taranto's inclusions could be, the biggest issue for the Giants is that they don't have either of their top two rucks. Matt Flynn didn't play last week after suffering a quad injury late in the week. He'll be out for at least one more round. And Braden Proust got suspended for the third time this year for a dangerous tackle on Tim English that likely contributed to his concussion. So game on Kieran Briggs in all likelihood. He hasn't played in the AFL this year, played five games last year, including two of the last three rounds, which they both won. For Collingwood, the only likely change is finding someone to replace Jordan Degoe, who we talked about a ton at the start of the episode. He is now on leave from the club. The wording makes it sound like perhaps it was him who asked for the leave, but I'm not sure. Not going to get into that any further. It's been discussed enough. Fact is, the Pies have been in good form, and if they keep that up, they'll be praised as a club that has the mental resolve to handle difficult situations. If something goes wrong here, then you start to wonder, are there further cracks? Did this Degoe thing really hurt them overall? It's not unlike the situation the Demons are kind of in with the fallout from the Stephen May stuff. And not unlike what the Giants' last opponents, the Bulldogs, faced, and they managed to put the Bailey Smith saga behind them. With how the Dugowie case has been handled by the club and the mass criticism for its lack of a real response to it, I feel like this game has more riding on it for Collingwood than last game for the Bulldogs and maybe even for the past few for Melbourne. Good thing is they have plenty of matchups in which they should have an advantage, including against Kieran Briggs with the combination of Darcy Cameron and new Australian citizen Mason Cox. From a GWS standpoint, I'd like to see Connor Iden play well. The GWS defense, last week notwithstanding, has been much better under McVeigh, but Iden's been pretty quiet since the coaching change, so I'd like to see a good game out of him. And for the Pies, whoever comes in for Degoe, maybe Tyler Brown will have pretty big shoes to fill in terms of on-field impact. They're a talented enough list, though, that I don't think it should radically affect their game plan. Still have plenty of other pieces through which they can go. You might see Scott Pendlebury pushing up a bit more in response, especially if this gets high scoring. Jack Crisp has plenty of ability all over the field, started his career as a fullback, now one of the most solid clearance mids in the competition. I don't see any particular reason why Collingwood shouldn't be able to take care of business. At this point, it's more of a question of margin. Something crazy can happen. The thing is, we've seen McVay's Giants for a couple weeks. It's pretty easy to tell where their weaknesses are, even if Davis comes back in. Hollywood by 14.5 is a line that I understand that I, myself, if I were betting, might push it a little bit further. I think it's a pretty fair line. A win for the Giants would do wonders for McVay in terms of strengthening his case for becoming the senior coach next year. If he can get the players to rally around him and outdo a finals team, that would likely be all the evidence they need. The final game of the round starts just 50 minutes after Collingwood and GWS get underway, and I think it's fair to say that this is the best of the five games between the teams that aren't in the top eight. No disrespect to a couple of the others, including that Collingwood-GWS game, but I think the power hosting the Suns kind of stands in its own category here. This is the only game with two teams that both still have legitimate finals aspirations, And this could really end up being a sort of eliminator, especially if the Suns get another big result on the road. The bounce for this one will be 3.40 p.m. local in Adelaide, so that's 4.10 p.m. in the eastern states of Australia, 2.10 a.m. eastern in the United States in the early hours of Sunday the 26th. So for me here on the West Coast, 11.10 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, Saturday the 25th. This is a Fox Soccer Plus game. 
Horde come in at 6-7. and seven. They're in 12th after their younger players showed really well against the Swans without Robbie Gray, without Travis Boke. It was really Connor Rosie and Todd Marshall who stole the show, and a couple other pieces returning had strong impacts as well. They also managed to do that without a ruck for the second half. And I wouldn't be shocked if they go that way again, just having Jeremy Finlayson and Charlie Dixon split that time. Maybe they'll just cut their losses against Jared Witts, who I expect to bounce back from his worst performance in quite a while. Witts and the Suns are 7-6. and six. They're in 11th. First time they've been above 500 this late in the season in eight years. And hopefully this game is a whole lot closer than the matchup in Carrara last year in round 14 when Port won by 50. I mostly remember that game because I actually put down more than a couple dollars on Port covering. They were favored somewhere between 20 and 30 points, and they basically had it on lock early in the second quarter. And the tone of both teams has really changed since then. One fun little note here, Gold Coast's first ever win came against the power. Since then, Port Adelaide have won 12 meetings in a row against the Suns. Also going the power's way is that they will have Travis Boak back for protocols, and maybe they'll be able to ease him back in a little bit, not being as prominent in the midfield right away. Our Rosie clearly benefited from having a greater role last week. Big step in his development. Trent McKenzie should be back from concussion. However, Zach Butters is doubtful after injuring his knee in the first quarter last week. Uh, hamburgers. He was one of the best players afield in that first stretch. And then Bryn Teagle, another victim of the debutante curse, broke his collarbone and is out six to eight weeks, which prompted my musings about the power cutting their losses in the rock. The injury situation from Gold Coast is not ideal right now. Obviously, Will Powell's done for the year after suffering that nasty knee injury. On the more positive side, there's an outside chance Connor Butterick gets back in this week. He got hurt on that same play. His was a hamstring injury. They're definitely not going to have quite as much flash and flair without Joel Jeffrey, who required knee surgery. But they do get Malcolm Roses Jr. back from illness. My concern for the Suns isn't so much what they do without Jeffrey, as good of a player as he is, because they've got a lot of quality forwards, but how do they fill the defense? Their defense wasn't that deep to begin with, and now that depth is getting tested really thoroughly. Sounds like Rory Atkins could slide in a spot there, but I don't know from a performance standpoint what they're going to be able to do. And who's going to fill in for Powell on the wing as well? Maybe Atkins could have a little time there. He's someone versatile. Could have Alex Davies going through. We saw some of his abilities on longer runs and in the forward half when he scored that late goal in front of his Oji San, his grandfather from Japan. Maybe you'd also put Matt Rowell on the wing, but Rowell's tackling was just phenomenal last week. Rowell definitely has some big flaws in his outside game, and he's been so good at what he's done lately that I wouldn't touch a thing with that triumvirate that they have in the middle. In terms of that midfield, how is Port Adelaide going to try to match up against him? I think Sam Powell Pepper will be a vital piece in some way, shape, or form. He's an aggressive player on offense or defense. Does he try to run with or run down Noah Anderson? Does he tag Tuke Miller to limit his touches? He could just as easily fight Matt Rowell for ground balls. You could fit him into any one of those roles, and it would make sense. So it's a matter of where does Ken Tankley put him first, and does he keep him there, or does he change Pal Pepper's assignment with the flow of the game? I really liked the way he impacted the game last week. I had said after the loss to Richmond that they were overly reliant on him, and I think last week their structure put him more in a spot where he takes them from good to great, but they're not exactly in a spot where if he doesn't have a good game, they're completely screwed. And Pal Pepper isn't the only piece in this puzzle. Dan Houston has been performing well off as well as with Sharon in hand. Ollie Wines is also an underrated tackler, in my opinion. With how well he moves the ball and pushes forward, I think that's a part of the game that gets lost in the mix, even when he's won a Brownlow medal. I think, once again, it's a must-win for Port Adelaide. I wouldn't quite classify this as a must-win for the Suns, but I think they have more to gain. If they win this game, I think it really turns some heads you really start thinking about the possibility of this team making the finals for the first time ever, whereas Port Adelaide would still have something of an uphill climb to deal with. I don't think I could be disappointed in the Suns' performance unless they either piss away a massive lead or just get absolutely slaughtered. I think overall, it's going to be hard for me to be frustrated by what they've done 
unless they revert to that form that they haven't shown in a couple months now where they've just gotten blown off the field. So hopefully that isn't the case and we have a competitive game to watch throughout. One matchup that I do expect to play toward the Suns' advantage if it does come to fruition is the battle between the South Sudanese talents of Alir Alir and Mabior Chul. I think that Mabior's greater muscle could really work to his advantage. And Port don't have that one tall key defender that could easily take those assignments. Alir has done some impressive work on guys bigger than him, like what he did after an initial mistake against Buddy Franklin last round. It's just that I can see Chol overpowering him for some reason, especially if he's able to stay out of the ruck more if Wits is able to bounce back. And even if Port brings Sam Hayes in there to make that tougher, I expect Mabior to win a couple important battles. Power or favored by 15 and a half? I probably would have said it more like 13 and a half, but that seems appropriate. That line doesn't promise a close game. We're not promising a close game. We're certainly hoping for one. These teams have some strengths in the same areas, but I think it's going to be the areas in which their proficiency differs that are going to decide this one. That should just about do it for our round 15 preview. Be sure to tune in for the upcoming recap, which we will be doing remotely as I will be in Ohio, which means that, again, the final six games of this round, I'm going to be watching on Eastern time. So have fun staying up late. Going to be... Highly caffeinated to survive this one, but it'll all be worth it. I'll be on a cool trip, checking off a couple more baseball stadiums, and I'll still be able to enjoy the footy. So let's have some fun. I have a feeling that Ethan will be posting a decent amount of photos and just information on what he's doing in Ohio and Michigan on his Twitter at Castle Media, especially when it pertains to some of the baseball games he'll be attending. I'm personally at BenjaminHK01. Together, we are at American's Footy on Twitter, and that's where we'll be providing our reactions to all the action that will be coming up these next four days. And Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is at cat named Brian on Instagram, not Twitter. You mentioned that you might start a Twitter where you just put in whatever he manages to type out on the computer. Still interested in that. But right now, I don't hear Brian, which means he's probably tired himself out running around trying to play with his mice. We've tired ourselves out by talking about this, and I'm sure editing will tire you out a bit more, but it'll all be worth it. We love sharing this with you and look forward to more engagement moving ahead. We're entering the home stretch. We're right around the two-thirds mark of the season, so uh, let's go. Let's bring it home. <laughs>